Welcome to the Product Boss Podcast, where we help product-based businesses grow their sales and improve their strategies. Hey, everyone. I want to introduce you to my co-host and biz bestie, Mina Kunlositev, an Amazon guru that has built a multi-six-figure product-based business. In introducing the other half of the product boss, Jacqueline Snyder. She has helped launch and grow over 500 fashion apparel and accessory brands, even one of her own. And together, we share our inventory of secret weapons that will help you dig deep and do the work it takes. Are you ready? Let's build together. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Product Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Snyder, with my awesome and amazing co-host, Mina Kunlo-Sitap. Hey, Mina. Hey, Jacqueline. So if you guys listened to our episode yesterday, the episode right before this one, we did a Q&A, so ask us anything, and we answered a bunch of really incredible, amazing questions. And I think we got them answered. They're big questions. They're not super simple. Today, we are adding on to that Q&A. Some of them are a little bit lighter. Um, and we are just so appreciative of you joining us and for everyone who has submitted their questions via Instagram or in our Facebook community. Yeah. Welcome back, everyone. Um, These questions are intense. (laughs) (laughs) Intense in the way that they are definitely questions that we work on in our strategy sessions, our two-to-one strategy sessions, or in our um, mastermind when you get your hot seat, So, or even in our our, um, office hours. So next time we ask you uh, if you have any questions for us, if we're going to do another episode for this, I would (laughs) jump in. We're going to have to. It's going to be like part 10 on (laughs) But we're so appreciative and I think it's, they're awesome. And like I said in the previous episode, these questions pertain to way more than just the people asking them. So let's start. Okay. So first question is from Melly. Melly Williams of Swan and Duck Papery. What advice would you give to people starting out in the product business world? Well, this seems like a gigantic question. You take it, Jacqueline. Welcome. Welcome Welcome to the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Product biz world. Okay. What advice would we give to people starting? Okay. I think I said this. This is, I had this answer for a lot of research. So um, a a lot of times people come and I work with a lot of startups. Remember, I've like launched over a thousand new brands in the fashion and accessory world. So um, a lot of times people come to me and well, I actually have like an assessment I do before I work with people and I ask them questions. Well, who's your competition? Um, I don't know. They'll say like, you're starting a laundry line, Victoria's Secret. Um, who's, you know, what's your price point? I don't know, $10. Um, where are you going to make this? Hopefully in America. You know, they have all this stuff that they tell me that doesn't have research behind it versus clients that I meet that I'm like, oh, you're ideal. They're the people who have done their research. They're really clear on who their actual competition is. They know if the product is out there. Um, and even if the product is out there, because that's actually a question we got on our Instagram today that I don't know if you've seen it. We have a client launching something or a listener and she's like, I keep seeing them everywhere. That's okay. Like there's something unique and special about yours, if there is. Um, and and let's see if there's a way into it. And if there's not, is there something else you can do that's a little bit different? Um, so I would say my biggest advice in the product business world is first researching and making sure that when you come out, you're coming out with a really strong product that's definitively different, but you also know who your your competition is and who you would, as we say in fashion, hang with. Meaning if you go into a store um, 
like let's say for clothing, you know, let's, I like to say Nordstrom. So you go into Nordstrom's and you go into certain sections of Nordstrom's, you know that you can find all of the premium denim lines in this section, right? You know, where you can find joie. Um, you know who you hang with, you know, who's on the shelves and the racks around you. Cause that's the same customer, the same price point. So you really need to know who that is. Yeah. I love that so much for sure. Do your research. It will help you immensely. Um, and really help to validate what you want to do too. Um, my best advice would be to know that product based is different than service based. So a lot of times when you're listening to advice or strategy about service base, it doesn't apply to product base that well. Um, an example that I would give is that a lot of times service based people are saying, build up your email list, create a dope opt-in, opt-in that's like a checklist, five things to send to ki- you know send your kids with to daycare. Uh, well, when a, someone's looking for a product, they're like, wah, wah. They don't want that checklist. They want a 20% off coupon. So your opt-in for a product-based business should actually be a 20% off coupon or some sort of incentive that is um, getting them to try it rather than having a um, bonus, you know, really cool opt-in that's a checklist because it's not incentive enough for them to convert to a sale, which is what you need for a product-based business. So that example is something I like to give because it doesn't always pertain the same way for service-based and product-based businesses. It's just different struggles, different strategies, different um, points of meeting your customer and then giving them what they want. So that's my advice. That's good advice. Um, <laughs> what? Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> what um, are you eating over there? A cookie? <laughs> uh, no, a protein bar. I got real hungry real quick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question is from Pam Strong from Therapy Ice Cream and Coffee Bar. How can I come to you and visit? Because it sounds amazing. <laughs> Do you have good insights on working with manufacturers on private labeling? Hmm. Okay. Do you want to start with this one, Mina? Sure. Um, I feel like I need more questions. I need to ask Pam of therapy, ice cream and coffee um, that um, is she going to be selling these items in her retail store? For instance, that would be a question I would want to ask. Um, I would say test things out. Let's say, let's say I assume that they're going to be in your ice cream store and it's like little cute I don't know, let's say a rolling pin or something. I don't know why you do have a little cute rolling pin, but you would, you could source that on AliExpress for like, I don't know, one to a dozen pieces versus on Alibaba, which is like manufacturers in China and India and stuff. That's like a 3000 minimum order quantity. So I would say start small. So that's what I'm saying. Like go to their sources that are able to start start small, even if it's like eBay and you're repackaging and private labeling with your own brands and then selling them retail, you know, on your own site. Um, this is something that people do a lot, 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 lot for Amazon. But if you're not driving your own traffic or there's nothing unique about that particular product, anybody can go to AliExpress and Alibaba and then buy the same thing and sell right next to you. But if you're selling it in-store on your retail store, your brick and mortar, then you should be able to take advantage of that foot traffic. So you could test out a, a lot more things or just source smaller quantities and build a brand. That's the other thing is that build a brand. Do not think of it as you're just sticking a sticker on there that says your logo. It's truly about the feel, the look, the 
feeling the tone of it all that when it comes together, it feels like therapy, ice cream, and coffee. Agreed. Um, We talk to clients and listeners and masterminders about this on the other end where they've been approached to private label. And so what you're going to get is minimums, right? So we've told our, we've told the people who work with us, if someone wants to collaborate with you, that's great, but you need to figure out what your minimum is for them to be able to do that collaboration because it's going to cost you money to make those labels and stickers. So I, when we don't know a lot about this question, like some backend information on it, but I agree with what Mina said on, um, testing this out and staying, on brand. And I would say, just be very clear. So if you really are going to do some sort of like collaboration on um, private labeling with like, let's say another small company, let's say it's somebody you met within our community. um, I would have things written down. I'd always have some sort of like written down. It doesn't have to be a full on contract, but within your purchase order or um, your invoice, if there's something written that's agreed to on the agreement that you're allowed to relabel it or that you know what their minimums are going to be, or you know how long it's going to take to get a ship to you, or how long the reorder takes. You just want to have all of the information. Yeah, that's if you, I guess you would work and it'd be kind of collaborating, but that's if it's co-branding or you're taking somebody that has, you know, like let's say our CBD client, she could actually, instead of wholesaling, put somebody else's label on it. So that would be another way that you could, you know, have something, let's say you have a CBD ice cream <laughs> or coffee because you can add CBD to your That's coffee. True. You can do and, CBD add-ons. Yeah. And um, let's say you have that. That would be instead of AliExpress, you're going straight to a small business that has the option to private label and then you could start there. So let's say, you know, they require $500 for the month or something. And then you could start with that and then see how much traffic you're able to get into your store and then convert them to sales. So, you know, what percentage of people are actually buying, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a question or KPI that you're keeping track of. Yeah. So Pam, this is definitely something we could dig into more. So this is a great question for like a strategy session with us. Um, So if you're interested, let us know. But this is something where we can tell you that there's so many ideas and options and we really need to have more backend information to know maybe a clear strategy for you. Yeah. All right. So the next question. Okay. This is Dina Christopher of Marie Hair and Beard Care. While revamping logo brand website and planning for 2019, should I continue to post product picks? So these are the old product picks. What do you think? Um, I I was I have a client that was coming out with a pajama line and she did all the photos and then she realized later into it that her product wasn't going to be ready and she wanted to redo it and she um, didn't feel comfortable about putting the pictures up. In a consulting session with her, I said, well, you can, you know, but she's like, well, I don't have it to sell it yet. I was like, okay, hey, well, can you do zoomed in things or things that are enticing? Um, no matter what you do, I think you need to stay on brand. And so with her, then I said, if you don't want to post that, can you repost like, can you search Audrey Hepburn wearing pajamas? Can you search someone else? Can you be known as a pajama expert? And then people will know to come to you as the pajama expert, people who are like really into pajamas. And then when you launch, they're already coming to you because they're into this. Maybe they're into luxury pajamas. And then when you release your line, they know that you're the you're the go-to, that they trust you. Um, so we have another client that we actually worked in a strategy session with that they had to legally redo their like their logo, their brand, and their website. They didn't they had to stop, they had a cease and desist on some of it. Um, 
and they posted some other things. They posted product um, and they posted quotes and they posted pictures of people doing what they were selling. Um, And then they started posting the new stuff. But I think no matter what, if you have content and you're still engaging with them, then I think that you just need to continue engaging, but you can lead them into, hey, guess what? We're rebranding. Like it's going to be really exciting when you see it. And then you can show them the new stuff when it comes out. Yeah. I would say go ahead and post because if you're, if only if you're needing to get rid of that old inventory. So if you're needing to get rid of that old inventory, go ahead and post and then sell off that old inventory. And then your new inventory will say, we'll have a sticker that says new look, same great product, something like that. Right. And then you'll have a ramp up to your launch. So it'd be like, Hey, guess what? We've rebranded. And you know, if you want to do a extra 20% off on old packaging or whatever, you could do that. Or you could just, you know, wait to launch when you've gotten rid of your old inventory or just, you know, I mean, sometimes people don't even care. I mean, they really don't. So if they, you know, come back to you and say, oh, I thought I was ordering this thing, just tell them that it's actually the same exact product. We just, we're in the middle of a relaunch. And this happens all the time big businesses, small businesses, like even Pepsi and Tide and everything, they change up their look, you know? So I think it's okay to keep posting, especially if you have have old inventory and then just make sure that people understand it's the same great product when you're releasing, you know, when you're launching that rebrand, you know, it's not rebranding a completely different product. It's just new look, you know, we got a makeover and here's what we look like now. I got my hair cut, whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, don't don't slow down your business because of it unless there's something legal that makes you have to stop. Keep going as normal. And then one day they'll wake up and they'll be on your brand or they'll, they'll be on your website and the whole thing will get a makeover. But guess what? That's something you get to talk about. So that's almost like a new launch of something, right? It's a whole new thing that you get to discuss with your community and with your customers. Um, I was in Waco, Texas this um, summer. I went to the Magnolia Farms, you know, with Joanna and Chip Gaines. They weren't there with me, but I was with them (laughs) in spirit. Um, And so I had spent in their normal, in their store at like the silos, some crazy amount of money, maybe like $35 on like a Joanna Gaines, like candle and her scent and whatever, right? Beautiful. Then I decided it was like a Saturday and I was, or whatever day it was, and I was able to go to their um, original store, the original Magnolia store, which is their warehouse. Guess what? That exact scent that I just spent $35 on was $10 a jar because it was in their old packaging. They were still selling it. It was probably on their shelves until the day they transitioned the packaging. They, and then they put it in their um, closeout section and they were selling off the new, pa- the old packaging because they were no longer promoting that on their website or on their Instagram or whatever it was. Um, and, I, and I bought three of them. So I went from buying one to more <laughs> because I love the scent. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't care what it looks like. I want the candle sort of thing. So those are all just ideas for you, but keep going. And then it's something new for you to talk about and share with your, with your community. Yeah, for sure. Especially for 2019, that's a fun time to rebrand because then you can be like, hey, remember back in 2019 when we rebranded and now this is what we look like? You know, so it's a a good time indicator of how how you'll progress in the year. Okay. So next question, is it Leah or Leah? It's Leah. Leah. Okay. So it's Leah Bruchette of Mother Snacker. Her question is, do either of you have a sweet tooth? And if so, what are your go-to favorite treats? So, you know, what's so funny is that I used to take such pride in saying I didn't have a sweet tooth. 
And then you realize you did. Yes. Oh my gosh. We grew up not having baked goods a lot of times. Like we no, just you eat fish sticks in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Like we <laughs> totally, we had sticky rice. We didn't even have like a lot of cheese, you know, like nothing like really American. And so I remember like one of my friends, she was like, I was like, what am I going to do with all these cookies? This is my adult life. Right. And she's like, well, you can freeze it. I was like, you can freeze cookies. Like <laughs> Mind blown. So I didn't grow up with a lot of sweets. And then I remember like one of the times when I had like this double brownie that one of my friends made, I puked off of it. Still in adulthood. You know, like how little kids will eat too much sweets and they'll puke. Well, that was me as a full grown adult. (laughs) And so I've always said I haven't had a sweet tooth, but it doesn't take long before you develop one apparently. And so I definitely have a sweet tooth because I definitely have my preferences. So I'll tell you in order what my go-to desserts are that I love so much. Number one is creme brulee. Love it so freaking much. I do too. I can, oh my gosh, love it so much. It's like my favorite. And number two is chocolate lava cake. Love that so much as well. And number three is a um, is like a tie between like pumpkin pie or pumpkin bars and anything apple. So apple crisp, apple pie, apple turnovers. <laughs> I'm like that guy on Forrest Gump. Jumbo shrimp. Jumbo. <laughs> Bubba. I'm Bubba. But with apple, like anything with apple, apple cider, apple donuts. I love all those. So those are my top three. How about you? Okay, one we we share very similar tastes, um, <laughs> very similar. Uh, so my sister's like a huge chocolate fan. I remember I um, got her a a pillow that says "Chocolate makes my clothes shrink." <laughs> <laughs> I am not a big chocolate person. Like I will do a lava cake because it's that sort of like not super super sugary sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good cookie. Sometimes I'm not an ice cream person, so I guess I can tell you the things I'm not. Um, I do love pumpkin pie. Is it a favorite thing? No. Creme brulee. Yes. I think I like, a, I think I like the things that are slightly sweet, but salty sweet maybe. So I like, I'll take like a, like a tart, some sort of fruit tart or something with fruit in it. Not fruit and chocolate though, but a fruit tart over like a chocolate slice of cake. Um, I do like coconut covered marshmallows. I know that sounds mm-hmm. crazy, but I do. And then um, I do love s'mores. So I think I actually know. Let's go back here. I love marshmallows. So even at like, <laughs> I don't eat them. You eat them plain though? I can only eat marshmallows if they're toasted. No, I don't eat a lot of things anymore that I wish I still ate, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't help either. So, but uh, um, like at Seas Candy, they have, especially at the holidays, they do that marshmallow bar that's like caramel, marshmallow, and chocolate that I can do. So I'd say that those are my sweet things. Yeah. I like peanut butter too. So then I'll make like peanut butter Rice Krispie treats because Mm -hmm. they're not as sweet as regular ones. And those are really good too. I feel like so many, so many good stuff. Like, um, but I didn't know how to make a lot of stuff, you know, like I like puppy chow too. Do you know what that is? No. It's like Czech cereal with like (gasps) peanut butter and chocolate and powdered sugar. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I'm not a big peanut butter chocolate person, but um, when I used to live in Thai town in Hollywood in LA, um, we lived near like the best Thai bakery ever. And so you were talking about it, but like mango and sticky rice, let me uh-huh. tell you, that got me through probably most of my pregnancy. And then <laughs> like, I really like the Thai desserts, especially like the rice. Oh, like rice pudding I like. So uh-huh. a little bit weird. 
Yeah. yeah like right now, the dessert that I've been eating a lot of since um, Biz Chicks, I know we mentioned them at least five times every single episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't get paid for that. <laughs> no, we don't. But they had um, oatmeal. And so I've been making oatmeal with chia seed pudding, which is just coconut and chia seeds. Uh And then um, I've been putting honey on there. And then this vanilla coconut granola is granola. It's like just oats or whatever and nuts. And, um, And then coconut sugar. And so I feel like that's overload of coconut. But it's, and then sometimes I add a banana. So, so I love coconut too, for sure. <laughs> I learned this trick once, which actually is good. I like is um, if you do oatmeal with like a square of dark chocolate, like just one little square and you mix it up and you can do like a little bit of like mint on top of it, like fresh mint, uh-huh. um, like dark chocolate oatmeal, kind of amazing. But you guys, Mina and I are first generation American. And so we were raised by non-Americans. It's funny though, that how similar you and I are in our flavor profiles of the things that we like that are not as typical. I feel like to like, let's say my husband, who's like uber American and he likes like ice cream a la mode, like on top of his like apple pie and, you know, things that like we just never, yeah, rice pudding from England, like we ate that all the time. I didn't even think about that coconut Thai dessert. So this is the usual one that Jack and I would share when we're out together is the sticky rice with like, it's coconutty and sweet. And then it will have some sort of mango on top of it. And we'll share that as a dessert. Um, In my mind, that doesn't, I don't think of that as dessert because, you know, like, I guess when I read that question, like, I love that Thai dessert so much. I guess when I was reading that question, I didn't think of that as a dessert dessert. That's just it's more like a snack. Yeah. <laughs> it's like food, my everyday food. <laughs> and smother snacker. <laughs> um, and also just thinking about meals you and I have had together, um, churros. Um, I do like me some churros, but you know where we had that Thai coconut dessert, which was like amazing. Was uh-huh, that, um, one. what was it? What's it called? We go there all the time. We're in Vegas at the Cosmopolitan. It's, um, Poblano. Yeah, yeah. It's like got Mexican. Oh, yeah. China Poblano. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by um, Jose Andres or whatever. And he has this like, it's like got crispy things on top of this like mango puree on rice. It's amazing. And I took a couple clients there that are from Texas and they're like, um, <laughs> what is this mango thing you're giving me? <laughs> um, but thanks for that question. That was a fun one. Um, next question is from Pam Andrews of the Scholarship Shark. Pam Andrews, Scholarship Part Shark. <laughs> <laughs> Take your turn, Mina. <laughs> What is a good profit margin for a product? A lot. <laughs> as much as you can. <laughs> as much as you can. I think a within, feasible one though would be the, what the market can bear, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's thousand percent, that'd be freaking awesome. Yeah. But the lowest that you should probably try to go is 40%. So then let's say you did some sort of special that was like 20% off or something. Um, you it would still bring you in 25% net profit margin. So let's say the thing is though, I will do stuff like I will contribute to a subscription box and it will give me 5% margin or something really low or 0% because I'm covering my costs, right? Um, but when you only do that all the time, you're only making yourself busy, you know? So like when I was saying to everybody that was doing these Black Friday sales, if you're only doing it just to be busy, there's no point because you need to make sure your margin is built in. Otherwise, you're just being busy when you have plenty of family and other stuff that you probably have to be doing stuff with. You know, 
So keeping that in mind, I think 40% is a good gauge. Um, and then, you know, in the normal markup of retail, it's costs times two equals wholesale times another two is retail. And that can even get bigger as you're going across different industries. Plus so many hidden costs, right? Like there's so many, like there's Facebook ads, there's giveaways, there's so many things when you think about your costs and then you're you're not even inputting your time, you know? So what do you think, Jacqueline? Yeah. um, I consult on this a lot, so much so that I think that I need to do like an actual video teaching on it. But um, usually what it is, is if if you're working in the traditional model, you're going to take your cost, minus it times two, that's I think should be your minimum. I usually within fashion, it's 2.2 markup. So um, you go cost times 2.2 equals your wholesale. And then usually within fashion, it's at least 2.2 again from your wholesale to your retail. And that's because retailers have a set margin that they want to make. So they're going to buy it from you at your wholesale price. So let's say they buy it from you at $10. They want to be able to retail it at 22. If they are being forced to retail it, if they're buying it at 10 and they have to retail at 18, they're not making the margin they make, they're not going to buy your product. They don't want it. Like it doesn't, it's not the margin that their traditional businesses are set up on. So when clients are trying to cost and they maybe are in startup mode or first year business and there's all these other costs or maybe they're making less units, so they're paying more per unit, they are going to um, maybe have to take a smaller margin. But what I do is I make sure that when, as you grow, that your margin can fit a traditional markup, meaning that if right now your wholesale is at $10, maybe your cost is $6, right? So maybe you're not making, maybe your cost is $6, but you think the market will bear like that $10 wholesale because it's not going to be able to sell for any more than $22 in a store. So bear with me. These are the numbers doubling up. Um, But, and what we need it to be is we actually need your price to come, your cost to come down to $4. What I would then tell clients to do is working with their contractors saying, okay, I'm making 50 of these with you right now. And I get that it's costing me $6 a piece. If I were to make 200, what would my cost be? If I were to make a thousand, what would my cost be? And you can see if you'll ever get it down to $4. If you can't, then you're not pricing correctly. If you can, then you're going to initially take the smaller margin to start to like get into it. And then you will, but you know, you can grow into the right prices. Um, so I would say that that's, that's the margin. And then I have like, you know, saying like, if you sell to Amazon, you lose a huge percentage. I have clients that have huge businesses built on things like Zulily.com where they're already asking you for discounts. So they might actually be going in with a higher price to start to leave more margin, like to leave more room. Um, and then what Mina and I both concluded is like 40% should really be whatever you're, what you're taking back to your business, 40% should be the least amount for your business to kind of be sustainable because you have to put that back into production. You have to put that back into the next um, collection. Right. That's 40% after you're taking out, let's look at Amazon. You know, they take out 15%. If you're doing FBA, they do a dollar per pick and then a percentage per pack. Um, And then at the end of it, you you know, 40% is actually really good on Amazon, right? So let's say it's 25% on Amazon because it can vary. Then you're trying to make it up in the volume. Can we give real numbers for Amazon? So let's just say, and I'm going to ask you questions like you're consulting me. So let's just say I buy a product that I'm going to sell on Amazon and it's $5 cost to me. Mm -hmm. How would I price it on, what would you price it on Amazon to sell it 
I would say, so normally, typically it would be times two. So five times two is 10 and then it'd be $20. I would say that would fit correctly because let's say 20 times 15%, that'd be $3. So that'd be $17 minus five, that'd be 12 remaining. And Why'd then- Why'd you minus the five? Because that's my cost of goods that you said. Okay. And then um, the pick and pack would be, I don't know, it depends on weight and things like that. So that's where it gets a little bit iffy. Let's say it's $5 total on that FBA. So we were at 12, now we're at seven. So seven is pretty darn good for each unit sold on Amazon. Um, So that's like 35%. Yeah, 35%. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Of course, if you sell that same thing on your own site, which is, you know, you don't have those extra costs. So $5, let's say you're selling 20 retail on your own website, then what do you have? You know, you have like $15 profit. That's why people love their own conversion on their own sales. But then, you know, you're probably having to pay for Facebook ads and things like that to push your own traffic. So when, if you're left with around 40%, I say it's pretty darn good, you know, especially across platforms. Um, Because everywhere you're going to, like even Zulily, right? It's usually 5% off, isn't it? 5% underneath wholesale. Yeah, they, they, I think they work out their margins differently with each company they work with. But usually uh-huh. what they do is like, let's say it's a $100 product. They tell, they tell their customers, $100 normally, you get it for $65. And then they split up that $65. So the customer feels like they're getting a discount. And then that $65 is broken up between you and Zulily. So this is how people can wrap their heads around it. If you're selling direct to your customer, your markup is great. I used to sell three cuffs to somebody and make what I would make in a wholesale order, right? Because I was selling them at 60 bucks each or something. And if they were, if a wholesale order was buying, you know, 10 at $10, it's, you know, a hundred bucks, it's nothing, right? So when you sell directly to your customer on your website, you're going to make probably the most money whenever you sell direct. You just have your own costs in your business. That's where, that's where like the margin is going to be great. If you're selling to somebody like Amazon, or any retailer, you could treat Amazon almost like a traditional marketplace because if you were selling to a traditional retailer, you were selling to um, mom and pop shop down the block, you're already only going to make the difference between your cost and your wholesale, right? So you're only going to make, you know, the 50% margin basically, like a double. So you have your cost at five, you're going to sell it to a mom and pop shop at 10. And then they're going to make the difference between $10 and the $20 they sell. But that's because they're a brick and mortar. And if you had a rep, like a wholesale representative, someone was representing your brand and getting it out in front of all of these wholesale shops, they would be taking a percentage. They usually take between 10, 15, even 18%. Like Revolve.com, I think, takes like 18% with marketing. So you're losing that off the top. Then if you're going to trade shows, you're paying for trade shows and you might be paying your rep commission. So no matter what, you're going to cut into your, your from your cost, your wholesale and your wholesale to your retail. Money is going to get cut out. You just want to make sure there's enough money built in that it can pay these things and you still do make a profit on the product. And if your margin is low, so this is the other thing, right? Some people are like, um, my cost is $5. I can't sell it for more than $20. Um, I'm just going to sell it to them though for $15, right? They cut out the quote unquote middleman. Well, that's when you really are going to eat into it. That's where you're going to have to start paying people to take your product. So you just want to, you do want to make sure that your markup is correct, whether or not you have a middleman, whether or not you sell wholesale, 
mm-hmm. because you need that room to come down. You need that room, that those capabilities to lose all of that money to Amazon for them selling your product. And so yeah, you don't start with your own traffic a lot of times. So you need to get on other people's platforms and other people's platforms, they have millions or billions of views and they will take a cut. So I think it's really important to make sure you have a good profit margin. Otherwise you're just making yourself busy and working for free. And then you could go get a job. Well, I remember someone said to me, I think it was my brother. It was like, you know, you could go get a part-time job and make more than what you're making right now. And I'm like, (laughs) then I need to make more money and figure out how to save stuff. (laughs) So unless you really like this as a hobby and it's like you're a maker and you just need to make, um, because they've got that whole hashtag makers got to make. Otherwise though, you are just keeping yourself busy versus pricing it correctly. So next question is Christine Heron of Everyday Explorers Company and they make journals and stamps. Her question is, how do you go about introducing totally new products to your audience, new product lines or new formats to familiar product lines? There's always the initial nervousness, like do I invest in having this thing printed, not knowing if my people will like it versus never doing it from too much research. One more survey. Um, thanks for this question. Do you want to do Pre-orders. Pre-orders. Um, sorry, I'm stretching as I'm saying that. So it's got the extra oomph behind it. So I think that you could definitely do pre-orders, but you're just gauging their response as you're pre-launching. So even if you don't get pre-orders, you're pre-launching it and saying, hey, I have something cool coming out. Would you like to be in the beta group that gets it released to first. You could do that, a beta group, right? Or um, get on this email list and you get to be the people that get the preview of it. And then that's like a soft launch, right? And so you're able to gauge more so if people will be into it. I think that you as a business owner will know your audience more, especially if you already have products out and then if they'll be into this newer product. But you know, you never know. It might be timing and everything like that. So I think a soft launch or a pre-launch is a good way to gauge if they're willing to put their money where their reviews are, (laughs) whatever the saying may be. But I think there's definitely a way to get them excited and ramp them up, especially if you have an audience of your own. I like that pre-orders. It's kind of like when people do Kickstarter campaigns and they're asking for the money up front and then they're kind of, and why clients have succeeded at that is that they've also, they were able to launch, let's say a Kickstarter, get the orders. Then after Kickstarter's done, they get to say like, which color would you like it in? And that's when they get to see which color is more popular amongst their initial backers. And then they might go into production on more of that color Um, knowing that the majority likes it. So it's a little bit like that pre-order idea as well. So if you're going to hit minimums from contractors. Um, So I like that too. I think pre-orders for sure. Um, And then a question that if you were working with us one-on-one, we would also ask you like, is it necessary? What is your most popular product? Um, Is this like, you know, crazy tangent or is it an iteration of what's already doing well. So we'd probably ask you a couple more questions to you to kind of see, because we have clients that have launched things all over the map and it's not necessary. Even We even have jewelry lines that we work with that have earrings and necklaces and bracelets and toe rings and all these things. And it's like, well, what's your best seller? Necklaces. Great. If you're going to launch something new, necklaces, not all the things. Yeah. And if you sell currently sell journals and stamps and they are used to a certain price point, they might not be willing to pay for something that's like higher priced. They just might be only, you know, that lower priced 
client. So that's something to think about too, is are they willing, you know, it's what the market will bear. And in this case, it's your market. So um, keeping that in mind and seeing how much they're willing, actually willing to pay in a pre-order and then how, if you're able to even get that profit margin, like what we were talking about in the very end, otherwise you're just busy creating products, you know? Um, so I think that that'll give you a good gauge. Yep. All right. Last question of this bonus episode. So we have Lauren Coupel of Navy Jane Plus Size Clothing. Her question is, in fashion, when you are trying to price your garments as luxury or higher end, what do you do if your markup doesn't reflect it in the price? So first, when you think about luxury or higher end for everybody that whatever you it goes back to the very first question of this episode is research. So first you want to research who's your competition, who's really your competition, right? Who, um, what brands would you hang with if you were hanging in Nordstrom's or in a store? See where you stand there. So if you're luxury or higher end, I'm just going to bring up Chanel. For example, Chanel to me is luxury. Um, it's high end. It's something that people want to get, but they're not always buying $3,000 leather handbags, right? But if you're going to position yourself as luxury, then your entire brand needs to reflect luxury, which means that the website, the photos, the images, the packaging, the way that you ship it. So the price, the price can be anything if the brand is that. Because I, I guess what I'd say is like, we don't know how much a Chanel bag costs. It could cost them $100 and they could be selling it for $3,000. But it's that perceived... Um, value, right? People are perceiving this brand and it's that value. You can sell anything if the perception is there and it goes with anything. It goes with anything. And I would tell clients that started this, I don't care how much money you have to start your business. I want you to look like you're a back to business. I want you to look like you've got money behind you because people are willing to get on bandwagons with somebody who looks like they've got money. We're not saying to like, you know, it's not a hoax. It's more of like, it could just be you out of your house selling your product. But if your website is awesome and beautiful and your photos are great, there are more people willing to buy from you because it doesn't look like you're sort of like hodgepodging putting this company. Yeah, that's looking professional. I do want to say something that Jacqueline had said before, and that is it takes a lot of money to make it seem like you have a lot of money. (laughs) So when you are a luxe brand like Chanel, you need to be lux, 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 higher end. Um, you know that it only costs twelve dollars to make a Dre Beats headphones. That's amazing, and they sell it for like one hundred and fifty, somewhere around there. One hundred and twenty um, is the one that I got, but they're a higher end. You know everything. Like they have, first of all, they have Dr. Dre, right? You know, and and then also everything is higher end in that it's not like a generic brand. Starting I think about. When they started in their marketing, when it first came out, who did you see it on? Yeah, um, exactly. Like celebrities. Like it was like every celebrity was gifted it. And if they were walking down the street and they had them on, that's what you associated it with. Yeah. So I think that it's hard just to price in that category because there's no competition. Um, so let's say there's no competition for Lux you know, uh, plus size clothing. And let's say she prices herself there. She will have to reinvent her brand to make it fit in that category. Otherwise it won't make sense. Like people aren't going to be willing to spend the money if it doesn't fit the higher end, you know, brand of what they're wanting to buy, I guess. But if you look at brands, like let's call it like St. John or some are mm-hmm. a luxe high end brand that already exists that 
has a plus size component to it, are they size to bigger sizes? Mm-hmm. That's when you could see that part of the market category, like how you could pull that out. So Zappos, for example, was created back in the day because he saw that 5% of shoes were sold via catalog, paper catalogs. And he figured out what the total shoe industry was. And if he captured 5% of that industry, it would be I think it's like a multi-billion dollar business, right? So mm-hmm. he had decided to do selling shoes online. People had never heard of it because you have to try them on and da-da-da, but he made it super easy. And so if you're able to capture a part of a category, let's say, I'm just throwing St. John out there because of the way that I think about them, but let's just say St. John had a plus size category to it. And we saw that that did so well. That they, you, go to their, you go to their stores or wherever they're sold and you see that like the plus size are always gone. For example, um, that might be when you pull that category out um, and say that that's where I'm going to run the brand. What I would like to answer is um, the question of, I'm just going to repeat it again. When you are trying to price your garments as luxury or higher end, what do you do if the markup doesn't reflect it in the price? So we're going to go back to the pricing section of it. You could have something super cheap. You could, again, we'll go down to the $5. It could cost you $5 to make something. And then... um, you could still sell it for $150 if the product reflects that. You could have a thousand time markup. You can have, we were saying it's what the market can bear. So you may be really savvy and have a really great um, cost and it can sell for $150 and only cost you $5. That's fine. But making sure though, then if you are selling it for $150, are people buying it? Does it reflect it? Does your brand reflect it? Does your website reflect it? Do your photos reflect it? Um, Does the material, does the quality of the garment, how it's sent to you, does it reflect if you're buying a $150 garment from someone else? $150 garments are not luxury or higher end. They're just contemporary. There's like different, in fashion, there's different categories um, between uh, designer, designers like Chanel, um, Gucci, that kind of thing. And there's contemporary, there's bridge, which is like this bridge between the two, which are $700 dresses. So you're really not there. I'm not talking anything specific to Navy Jean, but you're really not there if it's $150. But if your customers will buy it, great. If they're not buying it $150, will they buy it at $125? Will they buy it at ninety? Because if you've got a really low cost, you can do that. So it's really just playing with those numbers and seeing where it fits and how your entire brand reflects what uh, you're portraying and what you're asking people to pay you. Yeah. Price alone will not put you in the lux category is, is basically what it is. You and know. cost alone won't either. You don't have mm-hmm. to pay a thousand dollars to sell something for $10,000. Like you don't have to, I mean, 10,000 is high, a thousand dollars to sell it for $4,000. Like it doesn't have to cost you a thousand. Some things do. Mm-hmm. Like if you're making furniture or high-end garments, they do cost and that's why they are priced higher. Um, but there is room. Jewelry, for example, jewelry oftentimes has a 70% markup. There's room there. There's a lot of room in accessories, but you sell less of them. So, you know, people might buy a couple pieces of a necklace. They're not going to buy six to 10 of them. So you do have to have a higher margin as you're making those. Yeah. Skincare too, right? A lot of times skincare is pretty affordable. Let's say you get something and then you can mark it up according to brand alone. And if, as long as you're able to back up the brands with the luxe and the premium higher end version of what you're offering, then, and get people to buy it because there is the competition, right? Um, then, you know, it's what the market will bear if people are willing to pay for it. So another example is something like, let's call it like nail polish, right? You go to nail polish and all nail polish is nail polish. 
but it's the colors or it's the packaging. So if you want to think about like OPI nail polish is like eight or $9 a bottle. Is that any different than SE nail polish or generic whatever brand nail polish? I don't know. I don't know the components of it, but what did they do? Like did they, they did collaborations. They do collaborations with Hello Kitty. They were in high-end um, nail salons. Like often you could not buy it for a long time at like your local drugstore. And so it really, it really built the brand. Their cost may have been low, but, and I don't know what exactly it was, but I'm just saying nail polish is nail polish, right? So their cost might've been low, but the brand aesthetic, the naming of the product, the positioning of where it was, how it was available, can you only get it in one place? That's what also makes the brand warrant a higher, like a, like a higher price point and what it keeps it. They haven't lowered their prices, even though they're in Walgreens. People are now just willing to pay $8 a bottle or $10 a bottle for nail polish. Yeah. Uh, that's the word I was looking for forever. Positioning. <laughs> you have to be able to position it to validate the price and the quality and all that. And, um, and then if people are willing to buy it at that price. Yeah. So. So such great questions, everyone. Thank you so much for sending them in. We are always in our Facebook community, the Product Boss community, and we are also on our Instagram. And we definitely are on there commenting and participating in questions and and whatnot. And then, of course, we're always here for you if you want to work with us in the two-to-one strategy session. And if you follow us, you know we have been talking about our masterminds a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, That's our final question. Why should you be in our mastermind? <laughs> Throwing that one in there. Yeah. But I think I think just as a reflection of these of these questions, we deal with questions every day and sometimes they're really specific and sometimes they're really big. And I think like we said, having that community and having coaches to coach you through these and give you a lot of like many paths even. Um, lots of different ideas to figure out where you want to go with it. That's something. So I do want to tell you all that um, by the time you're listening to this, our we had a Cyber uh, Monday deal that will be expired, but we have very limited spots. When I say limited, we probably only have that, what do you think, two spots a group? Three. Oh, math per group? Per group. Like one to two? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we have a lot of people in in the process of applying and um, paying their deposit. So we have a, um, in our show notes, we definitely have a link to apply and hold your spot. It starts in January. Um, and if you want in, this is the time because we're not doing another one till September. Yeah. Till the fall, we usually really only launch this twice a year, but we're always here for strategy sessions. So if you do miss out, we've had a lot of people that missed out that got on the waiting list that are now joining the mastermind. But in the meantime, they worked with us in our strategy sessions and we were able to really kickstart their businesses. Yeah. um, This one is really exciting. First, we started with one group. Then we started with two groups because we thought, you know, we should really have a five figure and a six figure. Now we're seeing that maybe we'll have a startup one too. So it'd be startup, five figure and six figure. That way we can really hone in on what people's struggles are and what the questions they have that'll help them grow in that stage. And then there's an office hours that's mixed. So everybody will be working together in those office hours. So you will be kind of exposed to all these different types of businesses and how your strategy will change at a different level and a different growth growth idea of, you know, hey, how can I, what should I do as I'm starting out versus what should I do if I've already have sales going, you know, it's different. So I think that's really exciting because um, it's, I think it's far more effective. 
So it is an application process. So we take your application and then we would approve whether um, you would fit our groups or not and the groups that are already forming and, and the businesses that are within them. And we do ask for that deposit to really like hold that spot and it is refunded if you are not brought into the groups. Um, and then what I would like to say, because there's been a lot of questions on like, do I have to have a product? Well, that's why we launched the startup. We were calling it the launch, but really it's a startup. So it's really in that mode of back to the original questions, research. You've got that idea. You're researching the idea. You're starting to figure out all the elements of it. um, Maybe even narrowing down to the product you're going to make, where the packaging is going to come from, um, what you're going to price it at. If you're testing out contractors, really walking you through the entire startup phase, whether it's startup to launch. And then the next group is five figures. So you already have sales. You may be doing this, like bootstrapping this. Um, you're selling on maybe one platform, maybe you're selling on Etsy, maybe you're selling on your own website, maybe you're selling through Instagram, but it's small and your your goal is to grow to six figures, which we've had masterminders grow to six figures while working with us mm-hmm. and, and have said it's because they've worked with us that it really helped them scale to that next um that next area. And then because we've worked with people in six figure to seven figure businesses, we are keeping that as a really exclusive group because what they deal with is different than what everybody else is dealing with. Um, and so they're growing their teams and they're growing their businesses and they're growing the platforms and their products and everything like costs go much higher. Um, but their business is growing pretty big. So if you have questions, please reach out to us um, in our Facebook community. You can always email us at theproductboss at gmail.com. Um, and also on Instagram, we take direct messages and we respond. We're both on there just like chatting away with you guys. Yeah, we have a fourth business. It's called the Product Boss Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so much work. Thank you, Taylor J. McCall. And the DM. <laughs> but it's been great. It's been, you know, gratifying and fulfilling and it's been fun on Instagram. So make sure you guys follow us on there and we are definitely on there. It's been an initiative of ours. So we'll see you on there or in the Facebook group. Thanks everyone. Hey there still here? We want to invite you to our 2019 Mastermind, which starts in January. We've opened it up to three groups now to better serve our masterminders in startup, five-figure, and six-figure and above. We would love to have you in there to help transform your business into the product business of your dreams. Join other amazing product entrepreneurs for support, shortcuts, and real connection. Go to www.theproductboss.com slash mastermind for more information and to save your spot.